0: We have a very special treat today on the morning show, especially if you're a Cubs fan and especially if you're a baseball fan. But even if you are neither, there is still so much that is compelling about the story of one Ernie Banks, known as Mr. Cub, a very, very gifted and charismatic player who came up into the major leagues at a very important time in the history of Major League Baseball. And he was with the Cubs through... Thick and thin, and mostly thin, mostly through some very, very difficult years for the Chicago Cubs. And his tenacity is one of the things that really endeared him to a long-suffering Chicago Cubs fans through those years. And the story of of Ernie Banks and many of the challenges that he dealt with through the course of his long career uh, are explored in a wonderful new book called Let's Play Two the legend of Mr. Cub, the life of Ernie Banks. And uh, the man responsible for this fascinating book is none other than Ron Rappaport, who for many years was a sports columnist for the Chicago Sun-Times. And you have heard his voice, of course, again and again on NPR's Weekend Edition. He is an award-winning sports writer and has done terrific work here in telling the uh, complicated story of Ernie Banks. Again, the book, published by Hachette, is Let's Play 2, The Legend of Mr. Cub, The Life of Ernie Banks. Ron Rappaport, we welcome you to the morning show.
1: It's a pleasure to be with you, Greg. Thanks for having me on.
0: I'm really honored to be speaking with you. I really loved this book. And I learned so much about the Cubs. I am a Cubs fan, but kind of a come lately Cubs fan and uh, although I had the vaguest sense of some of their difficult years you really bring a lot of those uh, experiences to, to life in your in your really interesting book uh, for someone who is much more of a casual fan of baseball or not a fan at all I think it would be good to begin with the title of the book explain this phrase of let's play too and how indelibly linked it is to Ernie Banks.
1: Well, you know, Ernie may be the, the only great player I know who, who is mo- probably better remembered for a few words that he said than for all, the, all of his greatness on the field. I mean, Let's Play 2 has become a part of the, uh, the American vocabulary. People make jokes about it. It's true, but I, I have a Google alert for Let's Play 2. And if I don't get two or three hits a, a month or, or even in a week, I'm surprised People are always using it for their own purposes. You know, let's play to this, let's play to that. I have a whole chapter in the book about the etymology of it, how it developed, where it started. And then all of the people who have used it, um, one, a guy wrote a play about baseball called Let's Play 2. Uh, years ago, Bob Dylan and Willie Nelson went on a tour of minor league baseball parks, and it was the Let's Play 2 tour. It goes on and on and on. Uh, they, they've used it in politics. You know, Hillary Clinton was a big Cub, big Ernie fan and a big Cub fan, and Ernie would show up at her campaign rallies. And I know and one of the debates, the first debate with Donald Trump, it was said that the, the consensus was that Hillary had won the debate. So she said, let's have two, you know, that kind of thing. And that that that's that's what Ernie is remembered for that, and his sunny personality, alas, sometimes more than his real greatness as a baseball player,
0: right, and by the way, with that phrase, you tell us that there's actually it, it there is no certainty about exactly when he first said that, or exactly under what circumstances, but it's pretty clear kind of the optimistic energetic spirit that was behind those words. However, or wherever, uh, or whenever they were first uttered by him.
1: Well, the 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 problem is, is that Ernie would tell how it got started four or five different ways, depending on who he was talking to. (laughs) It started at this game. It started specific games, specific moments. He would tell the story about how I'm driving down Lakeshore Drive and I'm thinking, going to the ballpark. No, I'm driving through a, a, a neighborhood and I'm thinking. And he's telling the same story, different ways. And, and it, would, it, would, it was in 1969. No, it was in 1966. But his teammates, Billy Williams and some of the others, said they can remember it as far back as 1960 or 61. So the funny part is, one of the great moments in Ernie's life is he gets the Presidential Medal of Freedom Award, okay, from Barack Obama. It was a, you know, one of the last years of his life. Well, when you get that award, the president says something about you. He gives a little history. So Obama tells the story about Let's Play Two, and it was one of the phony ones that Ernie had made up. <laughs> oh dear! <laughs> I mean, that's our guy. That's Ernie.
0: Yeah, that really uh, that that Im- Im- embodies him in, in in a lot of ways. Ahead of us, talking about some specifics of his story, I would love to hear uh, something from you about what you hint at in the acknowledgments of the book. That is that uh, perhaps if life had unfolded a little differently, this might have been a full-length autobiography, but of course became a biography. Uh, in instead, tell us a little bit about how this project took shape and uh, and the kind of people you ended up uh, encountering in in order to draw this rich portrait of of uh, Ernie well, Banks. As you
1: say, <laughs> excuse me, it began as an autobiography. That's that's what. We were working on together. Ernie was living in, in, in California, Marina Del Rey, nice community near the ocean. I was living in the San Fernando Valley, about 20 miles away, or as we say in California, right around the corner. And, and I would go, go visit him at his, at, his, at his house. We would sit and talk, and I was taping it. And he knew that I didn't want to write just a biography of the image and Let's Play 2 and a sunny attitude he knew we had spent enough time together that we wanted to get to the real Ernie Banks, and we talked about a lot of things. And then he decided, no, I, did, I didn't want. He didn't want to do it. This is sort of Ernie uh, starting a project and then moving on to something else. Then we started again a year later. Same thing. Telling me wonderful stories about Buck O'Neill and the Negro Leagues about. His feud with Leo DeRocher, about growing up in a segregated neighborhood in, in Dallas, about playing for the Kansas City Monarchs, about his life after baseball, his problem with his he had four wives, about his kids and stuff. And I was fascinated by this. Greg then he pulled the plug again, and I, you know I have to say that at that moment it might have been the greatest disappointment of my professional career because we had talked about so much getting beneath the image behind the mask that he wore. And Let's Play 2 was a mask. It was something that he did to keep the outside world outside. Well, the problem with wearing a mask all the time is that you become a prisoner of it. You can't escape. There are at least two people who told me, and it stopped me cold every time, if only he could have been as happy as he pretended to be. Well, when he died, I, I wrote a article for Chicago Magazine, sort of unburdening myself about the frustrations and the joys of working with them, but the frustrations that had never came about. <laughs> um, an agent in New York saw the magazine piece. He sold it to Hachette Books. And I was off to the races um, uh, talking to his older sister, Edna, who is 90 years old in Dallas, still alive, still sharp. Younger sister, Walter, lives in Dallas. Talked to five of his high school classmates. I was able to paint a I thought I'd do a chapter on Dallas, you know, because it's important. It was He lived here for till he went off to the, to the Army. I ended up with four chapters that were so interesting to me. Talked to his teammates, Billy Williams, uh, Ferguson Jenkins, Randy Hunley, Don Kessinger, and more. Talked to um, Hank Aaron about, about Ernie. Talked to some of the people he'd played against. And talked to a number of people who knew him later in life after he had retired. And they helped me in all I talked to I, I told you more than 100 people and they helped me paint a portrait from his earliest days to the day he died, really. And what I tried to do is to tell the real Ernie banks, the man behind the smile he, he the smile was real. his love for people was real. but what was also real was the fact that he led a complicated, difficult, often melancholy, and at the end, quite a lonely life. And that's the Ernie Banks that I tried to present in this book.
0: Have you've done a great job. One of the things you say in your acknowledgments that I'm really glad you say is that when you reached out to various people who knew Ernie Banks, you you call it a fascinating discovery, which was that people not only were really eager to talk with you about Ernie Banks, but they also uh, went out of their way to uh, recommend other people that you could talk to that could further deepen the portrait. And uh, you you end up saying that uh, you realize that the closer people were to Ernie, the more they shared my frustration. That the joyful, melancholy, humble, complicated, companionable, lonely man they knew remained imprisoned in an image of one simplistic dimension. So in other words, all of these people so anxious to talk to you sort of shared your sense of mission in in painting a richer portrait of Ernie Banks, and they were eager and honored to be part of it. And I'm sure that's not always the way it is when you reach out to people uh, in order to write a book about somebody.
1: Well, I was gratified that they did have that attitude, but I must tell you that when I began, I wasn't sure how they'd respond. I mean, Ernie had hidden himself for so much. Maybe they felt, maybe they would feel, I thought, as I started, that they would honor that, that they just, they just weren't going to, dig in. They weren't going to cooperate with what I, what it was I had to do. The opposite was true. Every single one of them, without exception, said, come sit by me, or let me, how much time do you have, or that kind of thing. And the stories kept spilling out more and more and more and more. And then, as you say, they would say, have you talked to this person? And I'd say, well, who's that? They'd say, just call him up or call her up. And then it would be somebody else who knew Ernie, who I hadn't, hadn't, whose name I hadn't come across. And they would tell me more stories, and they would say, have you talked to this person? And it was like a treasure hunt, just kept moving on and on and on. And that's what made working on this book so gratifying, is that I kept, I kept learning more, discovering more. I had this thesis, I had this theory that we never knew Ernie Banks. But in being able to talk to all these people, and being able to fill out my idea in ways that I never could have expected was a very gratifying experience. It was—it became very exciting to me as a writer. It was beyond this path of discovery to be able to not expose Ernie, but to come to understand him. And here's here's my thought about it: is the fact that we know Ernie better now, the fact that we know the the, the good side and the problems doesn't make us love him any the less
0: if anything maybe we love him more
1: well I, I i would hope so that we that in understanding someone we we come to appreciate them on a different level uh, beyond the let's play two how you doing ernie went through life that way asking eight-year-old kids are you married you know that kind of stuff <laughs> and that was ernie that was that was the ernie that everybody loved but there was another man Uh, a a real human being inside that image, Hmm. and that's the guy I tried to tell about.
0: For those of you just joining us, I'm speaking with Ron Rappaport, and we are talking about his new book, Let's Play 2, The Legend of Mr. Cub, The Life of Ernie Banks. We have a lot to talk about, so I'm afraid we probably don't have a lot of time to talk about uh, his childhood and his family background and his relationship with the city of Dallas where he he grew up Uh, one thing that I did want to to highlight among many things that you say about uh, his family and his background is the fact that five of his brothers died quite young and there's something about hearing about that that sort of reminds us of the capricious nature of life and that uh, if if it weren't for his talent as a baseball player who knows what might have become of, of Ernie Banks. Can you tell us a little bit about his family, and in particular this fact that he lost five of his brothers?
1: Yeah, Ernie Ernie was the second child in a family of 12. Now, his mother had her first... Uh, Edna was born when his mother was 17 years old, and his last brother was born when she was 44. So Ernie was off and away. Uh, for, you know, he missed a lot of family life with his younger brothers and sisters. But there were always five or six kids around, and they and they, um, they lived in a in a, sh- in a shotgun house, which is uh, in, in North Dallas. Now, a shotgun house is you open the front door and you look through to the back door, right? There's a wood-burning stove, maybe a little parlor, and then bedroom, 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 bedroom on the way back. Well, if it's a cold night in Dallas and you're sleeping in one of the back bedrooms away from that wood-burning stove, you're going to be a little cold. No plumbing, no indoor plumbing, uh, outhouse in the back, no electricity. Um, and, and it was, it was a, a difficult life, a completely segregated neighborhood. I don't think Ernie had a conversation, a real conversation with a white person until he went into the Army when he was 19 years old. Um, and it, it was a difficult life. The WPA would, trucks would come by and drop off beans and cheese and flour um, there was a market nearby where his father worked for a while, and when, when deliveries were made, they'd call out, you know, and people would come, and they'd get the the fruit that they were throwing out—not rotten exactly, but you know, the kind of fruit that they didn't think they could sell. So they lived that way. It was it was it was a precarious kind of life, but kind of neighborhood. But this was very interesting to me. Um, he, I, I was able to find five of his high school classmates. And the way they described it, as poor as North Dallas was, it was the kind of a neighborhood that, where everybody was on the lookout for everybody else. If, it was a place where any adult could discipline any child. One of, his te- one of his classmates told me, the last thing you wanted to hear was somebody coming out on the street and saying, boy, stop doing that, because you knew you were going to be in trouble when you got home. And that was, that was the kind of neighborhood it was. Now, the school he went to, Booker T. Washington High School, which is now the Booker T. Washington High School for the Performing and Visual Arts, one of the top art high school magnets in the country, um, it wasn't, it, they really learned some things. They, it, was, it was not a bad school at all. Um, and Ernie would even have learned some, some black history, I believe, because the man who ran it, John Leslie Patton, for 30 years— was a historian and a writer about black life and black education, and he had been taught by Booker T. Washington's daughter. So that's the school that Ernie went to, and they've now just erected a statue. You know, Dallas has kind of forgotten about Ernie because he went away, didn't really come back except to see his family. A lot of people didn't know he was from Dallas. Anyway, last September, they finally erected a statue outside of his old high school. Mm, that long, long where, where <laughs> when he was a little kid, he used to play football, with a tin can, you had to be careful not to cut yourself.
0: <laughs> you you actually tell us that uh, I'm pretty sure that Booker T uh, Washington High School uh, did not have a baseball team. He played basketball and football and track there, but but uh, but actually in those years he was mostly playing fast pitch softball. I think.
1: And right, right. They didn't they didn't play baseball. In fact, they didn't play basketball either because they didn't have a court. So they played at the Moreland Y which wasn't far away. But they did play football, and, he, and, Ernie, and, and if you played football, you had to run track. So Ernie, Ernie did that. Now He was a good football player. He was an end, Greg. They didn't have wide receivers there. He was an end. Uh, and, and he was good. He was fast. He, he was sure-handed. He could catch the ball. And he caught people's eye. And as, the, as, I, as you say, he was asked to play um, softball out on, uh, in, in the city parks, and that's where his baseball career began.
0: You tell us the story of him being discovered by one uh, Bill Blair, and uh, and of how uh, shortly thereafter he encountered a man by the name of Johnny Carter, who made quite a strong impression on him. Tell our listeners about this uh, important moment in in Ernie Banks' early life. Yeah,
1: Bill Blair saw Ernie standing and watching. Remember, now I said that Ernie liked to avoid drama; liked to stay. You know, didn't like to join in. He liked to watch. He was on the outsider. Anyway, you saw him standing and watching a football practice at Booker T. Washington High. And Bill Blair said, what are you doing there? What are you doing watching? Go get yourself a uniform. Well, nobody defied Bill Blair. Bill Blair was a uh, former uh, Negro Leagues pitcher who always had great stories about pitching in the Negro Leagues. And the boys in the neighborhood had just idolized him. Here comes Blair. Straighten up, you know that kind of a thing. He would he would tell them, you know, who to, where not to go, who not to hang out with, go to church, that kind of thing. Bill Blair went on to become a very important person in Dallas, one of the top civil rights activists in the city's history, and he started the Dallas Elite News, a newspaper for the black community that's still going today. I talked to his son Daryl. So, Ernie started playing football. Then he was discovered with with baseball, softball, and he started touring. He left Dallas and. He, Went to play with Johnny Carter's softball team. Went to places like Amarillo and Roswell, New Mexico and Hastings, Nebraska. And he got a look at, got a look at, at, uh, you know, life outside Dallas, which was very interesting to him. And he developed as a baseball player, yes.
0: Right. You tell us that, uh, that he, uh was when he encountered this Johnny Carter, owner of the Detroit Colts. That would have been a, a Negro League semi-pro team in Amarillo. Team. He was fascinated by Carter, who not only owned the Colts, but also the combination hotel, restaurant, bar, and liquor store where the players lived, ate, and drank for free. The roof of the hotel might leak now and then, but still a black man who owned a thriving business and a baseball team.
1: Well, and that I was up to you <laughs> Ernie. See, his whole career was was learning was education, remember now he lived in this black neighborhood where where you know they it was just very poor and very impoverished. so here's a guy who's making a success in the business world. Johnny Carter owned some of the hotels that they would stay with on the road or some of the restaurants, and he saw an entrepreneur, a guy who who wasn't held back by by race the way Ernie had Ernie had never seen anything like that. It was a real eye opener to him. It gave him something to think about, mm. and he, he continued as on his journey through baseball to see thriving black communities that were very different from what he the community he grew up in in North Dallas.
0: Right. We're speaking with Ron Rappaport about his new book, Let's Play Two: The Legend of Mr. Cub, The Life of Ernie Banks. I especially enjoyed uh, the second section of the book, which you title Apprenticeship, in which we learn all about Ernie Banks's experiences with the Kansas City Monarchs uh, uh, in 1950. But one of the things that is so interesting is not just about Ernie Banks and his own experience, his own success, but also the state of the Negro League at this point in time. Uh, explain to our listeners the sort of the state of affairs uh, for the Negro Leagues uh, at, at this point in time when Ernie Banks uh, uh, entered, the, entered the picture?
1: Well, Ernie got to uh, Kansas City in 1950, and by 1950, the Negro Leagues were dying. The minute Jackie Robinson integrated baseball, interest in the Negro Leagues dropped off a cliff. The black fans, the fans of the Negro Leagues, were now much more interested in Jackie Robinson and Larry Doby and Satchel Page Um, and and the other Negro League, Roy Campanella, people who were integrating, than they were in the Negro Leagues. The the fandom completely dropped off. People stopped going to the ballpark. And so Ernie got there, and and, and within a few years after Ernie got there, the Negro Leagues were, for all practical purposes, dead. But but Ernie got there, and he he was very lucky that his manager there was the great Buck O'Neill, who taught him a lot of things about, like, about how to play baseball, but also about being careful on the road. You know, now he's, they're traveling to cities where there are you know, black people and white people who didn't mix. You know, there were certain places you didn't go. And Buck would tell him, don't go here, don't, do, don't go there, don't do this, and be careful when you're around white people at all. He said, be very careful of reckless eyeballing of white women. Well, he, Ernie figured out exactly what that meant. He said, if you got caught doing that, you could, you could be in a lot of trouble. Uh, you, never, you never knew what would happen. So again, this is part of Ernie's education. But the Negro leagues, the Negro leagues were on their last legs, and he was—you know—he played for some of the last teams that, that O'Neill managed, and he still had a great life with the Monarchs. He loved his teammates. He was young now, <coughs> 1950. He was only 19, 20 years old. Then he went into the army for two years, came back for one last year with the Royals, with the Monarchs. I'm sorry. And he loved his teammates, and they loved him. They looked out for him. And, and he, he liked traveling with them, being on the buses. He liked playing the game. He thought they played at a very high level. So in 1953, at the end of the 1953 season, when he, they, they, the owner of the Monarchs sold his um, contract to the Cubs, Ernie didn't want to go. I, I don't know Chicago. I don't know anything about that. I like playing here with you. And his teammates, especially a Negro, Negro League shortstop named Sherwood Brewer, said, "Ernie, you got to go. You got to do it. You, you got to do it, you know, for yourself. You've got to. You, this is the next step." So Ernie goes to Chicago, and he immediately is thrust into a situation that he can't really handle. He and Gene Baker were the only two black people on the team, and instead of hanging out with his teammates after games and living together and going out together the way he had in Kansas city, when the games were over, the black players went North and the white player, black players went South. The two black players went South. White players went North. He was very uh, discombobulated by Chicago. He didn't really understand it. It was hard for him to come to terms with living in, living in in this kind of segregation uh, while he was still playing baseball but his experience in the Negro, Negro Leagues were formative. I believe, They really taught. In the first place, he really developed his game there. He was taught by some very good players, and Buck O'Neill, how to play the game. But also, it gave him a different look at life. That that was that a different look from where he had come and from where he was going.
0: Right. And one of the things I really appreciate about the way you describe this chapter of Ernie Banks' life and, and about this final chapter of, of the Negro Leagues is I think you really help us understand the complexity of the picture, that the Negro Leagues were dying, in a sense, for the best of reasons, because at last Major League Baseball had opened up uh, to black players. Uh, but with that came this demise, which in its own way was was nevertheless a, a really sad thing, especially for those for whom this was really important.
1: Well, at the time, uh, as the Negro Leagues were dying and, and Major League Baseball was integrating pretty slowly, actually, uh, at the time a lot of the black press and black fans uh, said it's fine for the negro leagues to die this is what we've been waiting for if this is the price we have to pay fine you know we we've, we've wanted this we've fought for it this is our moment and if if we have if the negro leagues are, have to pay this price then we can live with it but others felt differently the negro leagues games were a tradition in the cities they played in in memphis and in pittsburgh and in chicago and uh, and in new york and in baltimore there were great teams with great players and to see them just disappear overnight like this was kind of sad for the black community because that had been a rallying point that had been a a gathering place got a whole chapter or a whole section in the book about the east west all-star game which was played in comiskey park every Mm year it was that was that was like a great gathering of black people from all over the country. Trains would come from the south and the west and up the Atlantic coast, and everybody would go there. It, it was just a great gathering moment. All the great black uh, artists would come, Billie Holiday and Duke Ellington and, and uh, uh, Louis Armstrong. They'd all come to town and play in uh, the Chicago clubs. It was a, it was a great gathering moment, 50,000 people with Phil Comiskey Park, more than the White Sox were drawing sometimes. And they were great games. And they weren't like the Major League All-Star game, which is an exhibition. This was their moment to show before a big crowd how great they could be. And the players gave all out. Went all out. And Ernie played in one of these games, but by then, uh, people were not too many people were coming. They were Some of those who did come were trying to tune in to see how Satchel Page was doing, p- pitching for the Indians, that kind of thing. So yes, uh, the demise of the Negro Leagues was necessary, and 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 uh, it, it had to happen. But there's a certain sadness connected with it, too.
0: A certain loss, for sure. So, Ernie Banks becomes a Chicago Cub, and uh, it is a uh, amazing, wild ride. Uh, ahead of us talking about just a few things that happened with him, I want you to say a word about the position that Ernie Banks played at the outset of his Major League career that of shortstop I really I feel like I came away from your book with a a new appreciation for the special challenges and opportunities uh that this position uh sort of offers a player uh tell us about the position of shortstop and what made Ernie banks uh such a great shortstop uh, in in his prime years
1: well ernie Ernie reinvented the position of shortstop and it took a lot of getting used to. He was underappreciated as a fielder. If, if he got to the ball, he, he would catch it. He caught everything. And his throws to first base were, were excellent. Um, and he was very quick. But he, here's this pretty big, lithe, home run hitting guy. And in baseball, at that time, shortstops didn't hit home runs. They just didn't do it. Ernie hit more. In, at one year, he hit more than everybody else in the National, National League put together. And it was a big surprise, and people kept saying, well, a big guy like that, he shouldn't be playing shortstop. And they kept trying to move him around, left field, third base, where he wasn't suitable. And later in his career, when he began having uh, knee trouble, or, or cartilage problems with his knees, he moved to first base. And he ended up playing more games at first base than he did at shortstop. But as a shortstop, the Cubs kept trying to move him around. They kept trying to bring in other shortstops. And it was very strange. Um, the idea that that because he was hitting home runs, because he didn't bunt, you know, because he he, he he didn't beat out ground balls. You know, he was quick, but that wasn't his thing. His thing was to hit homers and drive in runs, and it was very confusing to baseball in, in general and to the Cubs in particular. They just never got used to the fact that he was really a very good fielding shortstop, but because he was a home runner hitter, they just couldn't couldn't – Come to terms with that. It was very strange. Hmm.
0: I feel like one of the most valuable things you do in your book, besides kind of illuminating us on Ernie Banks himself, is to also tell us the full, fascinating story of one P.K. Wrigley. And uh, he is, of course, an indelible presence in in the the career of of Ernie Banks. And uh, does so much for good and for ill, a lot of it for ill in terms of the fortunes of the Chicago Cubs through, through these years. Uh, I, I wonder if you would say a word about Mr. Wrigley and in particular uh, his really innovative spirit and in the way that he, in your words, liked to use the Cubs as one of his workshops.
1: Well, uh, P.K. Wrigley was was a guy who liked to take cars cars apart and put them back together again take a watch apart and put it back together again. He was a fabulous character, really, in his own right. And, and he viewed his baseball team as, as another machine to be tinkered with. And he learned pretty quickly or over the years that a baseball team is not a watch you can take apart and put back together again. But he had, he had some wild ideas. I mean, they, some of them were just utterly preposterous, like the College of Coaches. He would bring in four or five people to take turns managing a team in the same season, I mean, it was it was just ridiculous. But as early, as early as the 1930s, he tried to bring in a psychologist to work with the with the players. Well, they just laughed. They called him a head shrinker. and Nobody would have anything to do with him. Well, look at it today. Every not only every team, but almost every player has a psychologist. He he would he wanted to do things. There were other things that he that he that he did that were just they were just ahead of ahead of the, ahead of their time. They just didn't work out uh, at that time. He, he brought in a guy named Bob Whitlow, who he called the Cubs athletic director, which he only lasted a couple of years. But Bob Whitlow brought in a weight room. Well, baseball players didn't do weights. You'll get muscle bound. You won't be able to hit. Well, now there are weight rooms everywhere. Bob Whitlow was the first one to start charting pitches, counting pitches, you know, how many pitches a pitcher is throwing, how many curveballs, how many fastballs, this kind of thing. Well, with the, with the digital revolution, the statistical revolution of baseball, uh, that's common today. So a lot of the things that Wrigley propounded were, 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 take, were laughed at at the time, but were taken over and now become a regular part of baseball and of sports. The one thing Wrigley didn't do was build a good team. <laughs> he, was, he was real chintzy when it came to signing minor, minor leaguers. The minor, leaguers, minor league teams had to pay for themselves. He wouldn't use his tremendous fortune from the Wrigley Chewing Gun Company to, uh, to help the, to, to pay for players at all. He kept the books separate on both of those things. So he, he never was good at, at, at scouting players or, or hiring people that were good at scouting players and putting together a team. So he was kind of a fascinating character. On the one hand, he was this great visionary. On the other hand, he put together some of the worst teams in the history of baseball.
0: Right, you're right. While Wigley remained a wildly inventive owner who had new ideas, good and bad, throughout his life, when it came to building a winning baseball team, he remained stuck in the past. Yep. <laughs> and uh, and 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 of course, the 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 win loss records. Uh, tell that story uh, very, very vividly. But it's nice to know a little bit uh, of of the story behind the struggles of of the Chicago Cubs. For Ernie Banks, uh, the big breakout year is 1955. And one of the things you say in describing this first big year of success for Ernie Banks is that he transformed uh, the role of power hitting. In what way did Ernie Banks help sort of transform the notion of what was possible with power Arnie hitting.
1: Banks, he was standing around the field one day, I think in the polo grounds, and Hank Thompson had a bat with a very light, a very, very thin handle, and it was very light, 31 ounces. And he said, Hank, what's that? He says, well, I've been experimenting with it. It helps me get around on pitches. And Ernie just kind of put it in the back of his mind. And then the next year, he started using it, and Hank Aaron was using a lighter bat, too. Um, Now, everybody, the big power hitters used big bats. Uh, Lou Fonseca, who who pioneered, he was an American League batting champion, and he pioneered um, taking films of games, said that if you didn't use a great big bat, you were a sissy. Babe Ruth used a 40-ounce bat or even bigger than that. And everybody in the game, all the power hitters then were using these big bats. Well, Ernie and Hank Aaron in 1955 started using um, thinner, lighter bats. They started using them like, it was kind of like a whip. And Ernie had these great wrists, as did Hank, and they could get around on balls. And all of a sudden they're hitting home runs just going wild, hitting homers. And and the other hitters in the league took notice. It was a big deal. Arthur Daly, the great columnist for the New York Times, was speculating, that gee, if Babe Ruth had had that little bat, he might have hit 100 home runs, you know. And by the within a couple of years, all the big home runners hit home run hitters in the game, Willie Mays and the rest of them, were using Ted Williams. Were using lighter bats, and it was a real revolution. The one people, what group that was weren't real happy about this, were the guys who made the Louisville sluggers, because it wasn't the big leaguers so much, but it, but now the little leaguers are catching on, and and the casual players, and they all want these little bats, and they kept breaking. And they kept saying, well, something's wrong with the bat you sent it. And the bats kept breaking and breaking. And there's nothing wrong with that bat. It's just that you should use bigger bats, because you're not a big leaguer, that have the wrists <laughs> that can use a little bat and keep it from breaking. So this really was a revolution in hitting. Mm.
0: One of the most interesting things about Ernie Banks in these years of, of struggle uh, when the Cubs themselves were, were really doing poorly, is that Ernie Banks, uh, one of the best players in baseball, was playing the the, the game with a non-contender, a non-contending team. And one of the things you suggest is that uh, Ernie Banks, in these years when the team was struggling so terribly, uh, began to play as though in a vacuum. Uh, explain what is behind those intriguing words of Ernie Banks playing as though in a vacuum.
1: Well, one of the things I wanted to do in the book is reclaim his greatness as a ball player. We remember him for Let's Play 2 and The Smiles, not playing in the World Series. We tend to forget what a truly great baseball player he was. Between 1955 and 1960, Ernie was the most productive power hitter in baseball. In those six years, he won two home run titles, two RBI RBI titles, and back-to-back MVP awards. Also, in those six years, he hit more home runs and drove in more runs than Willie Mays, Hank Aaron, Mickey Mantle, Eddie Matthews, and everybody else in baseball. 1955, he hit five Grand Slam home runs, which set a record. And, you know, to the jokes of, People saying they didn't know the Cubs had loaded the bases five times, you know, because they were such an awful team. Well, for his – now, those other players, Mays, Maddle, Aaron, Matthews, played in multiple World Series in and around that time. Ernie's Cubs in those six years finished a a combined 123 games out of first place. So here he is, the greatest power hitter in baseball, playing for this awful team. It's like he was on Exhibition. It's like there was the terrible team, and here is Ernie. He's kind of like a unicorn or something running around the field because he's, his, his game, the game he's playing, is separate from the game that, that his teammates are playing. Um, I, I think one of the things I wrote that, that he was baseball's great afterthought, he didn't really come to national attention until the Cubs started winning 1967, they, they, they did pretty well. 1969, he was in his late 30s then. He, he was bef- before that when he was this great player. Because the Cubs weren't in contention, he was, he was out in the mist somewhere. He was gone. Everybody else was talking about pennant races and World Series and so on. And Ernie was not a part of that. He was, he was on his own.
0: We're speaking with Ron Rappaport about his fascinating book, Let's Play 2, The Legend of Mr. Cub, The Life of Ernie Banks. We, of course, have to spend at least a couple of minutes talking about one Leo Rocher <laughs> and about the uh, contentious relationship between them, although that's actually probably not the best way to describe it because uh, it was uh, it was a relationship in which Leo Rocher was unmercifully hard on Ernie Banks and harsh with him. And Ernie Banks never seemed to uh, say a public word of protest about the way he was treated. Uh, take us inside this relationship, this dynamic. Uh, I think you do a great job in the book of explaining what might have been behind Leo Rocher's uh, decision uh, to treat Ernie Banks in a way that seemed uh, to many onlookers quite disrespectful
1: well it's hard to overstate how poisonous their relationship really was Um, from the moment leo got to town he started belittling ernie in public knock off that mr cub crap he'd say in front of him to the writers um and, and and but even worse than that was how he tormented him in the privacy of the locker room berated him ernie told me of a specific incident where leo went after him with such a long humiliating harangue just sit and everybody was just sitting there the whole team and he looked around the locker room and saw his teammates were looking at him with pity that Leo had that, that Leo's purpose was to reduce him in stature um, From the moment Leo got to town he just went after Ernie Why did he do it? It's pretty easy really His ego demanded it. he couldn't stand not being number one not being the center of attention, the guy in the center of the ring. He couldn't stand the fact that somebody else got more attention and was more popular than he was. One of the things Ernie told me was Leo wanted to be Mr. Cub. Mm. <laughs> and it just the relationship just never got any better. Er, Ernie was playing first base then. So I'm talking to Fergie Jenkins, okay? And I said, well, tell me about Ernie and Leo. And he says, all right. Ernie tried to replace – uh, Leo tried to replace Ernie at first base five times. Let me give you the names. John Bacabella, Lee May, this guy, that guy, the other guy. And Ernie always won the job back. Well, I, looked, I looked it up, and Fergie missed four of them. There were nine different players that Leo sent in to play first base and to try to bench Ernie. And, er, and, and, and Ernie came back each time and ended up playing 150 games a year at first base because he was just, he was just, you know, he was just not going to, he just had to show Leo, but Leo wouldn't just wouldn't, couldn't be convinced to the end of their, to the end of time that, that they finally left the Cubs, um, Leo, in his autobiography, um, uh, rips Ernie. He just couldn't stand the fact that Ernie was the most popular guy in town. He was not.
0: Hmm. I really appreciate the time that you take uh to describe this relationship and uh and also the pains that you take to be fair to both of these gentlemen, even though it's really hard not to
1: uh, every to... book needs a villain, Greg. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I, I, I tried to be fair. Leo was a charming guy. I try to express some of that. If, if you go to if you go to a if you go on YouTube or just Google, Judy Garland and Leo DeRocher, okay? And you will come to a, a time when Leo was on Judy Garland's television show, and they're 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 talking, and Leo says, Judy uh, says, let's sing a song. And Leo says, okay, let's sing a song I know. Let's sing, Take Me Out to the Ball Game. And I think Leo is more um, uh, calm and at ease than Judy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's 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 a wonderful clip, but. Leo, uh, went in. in uh, he, was, he was coach for the Dodgers before he came to the Cubs. And he was on every TV show and every sitcom, every uh, talk show in town. And when he would, not, would be on the sitcoms, he'd always play himself. He'd always drop in to play himself in an episode. And he played the role great. You know? mm. Leo was a charming guy. Everybody loved being around him. But he was an awful manager, not just with the Cubs, where I, I'm convinced that the Cubs lost the 1969 pennant to the Mets because of DeRocher. There's, mm. there's no doubt in my mind. Right. He ran that team into the ground. Everybody played 155 games. Randy Conley caught nine double-headers. That kind of a thing. Mm. I don't think he was ever a very good manager. I just think he was a good self-promoter.
0: Right. And, of course, you talk about that summer of 1969 when uh, when it looked like the Cubs were going to maybe take it all, and, of course, it all unravels. and And you also talk with Cubs fans looking back over all these years later uh, at that at that crucial season and I think you're right there's actually not much of a mystery behind why that all uh, ultimately went wrong let's just spend a minute or two talking about Ernie Banks after retirement it sounds like uh, once he was not playing baseball it was really difficult for Ernie Banks to sort of settle on a new role for himself
1: well he the problem the basic problem was is that he didn't have any anything he could do after baseball anything that that was obvious for him he, he must have held fifty different jobs uh, there were just all kinds of but they, but they were all had to do with his personality Ernie was the front man Ernie would you know they would announce that Ernie was joining this company or he was going to do that job and they'd get some attention in the press but basically they just wanted him to uh, to use his image or to play golf with the with the, you know, with the customers or, or that kind of a thing. So Ernie was very much at loose ends. You know, Greg, they say that athletes die twice. Once when they're still pretty young and can't play the game they've given their life to. You know, and Ernie just didn't have um, uh, any, anything obvious to do. And, and the, towards the end of his life, it got even worse, I'm afraid. He left his wife in California, his fourth wife, moved back to Chicago, where he was pretty much alone. His sons were back in California, too, and they told me a lot about the pleasures and problems of growing up as Ernie Banks' sons. They're they're twin boys, Joey and Jerry. He's living alone in Trump Tower, and as I I say in the book, he became a master of the art of hanging out. Hmm. He'd sit at Harry Carey's restaurant for hours or in an office he had at the Wrigley Building or in a barbershop owned by a Russian immigrant named Peter Vodovos on Walton Street, he would just hang out. He would just be around. And it was kind of sad. The man had no purpose. Um, when, the, when the Ricketts family bought the Cubs from the Tribune, they started treating him better than the, than the, than the Tribune had. They gave him a job as coming into, coming into uh, the, the, the suites, talking to the fans, hanging out, being around. Um, they took better care of him than the Tribune did. But it was kind of a shame that he just didn't really have any purpose or any family around him.
0: Hmm. Well, I think you have really helped uh, all of us to come to a richer understanding of an appreciation for all that Ernie Banks gave to the game of baseball and to the city of Chicago. uh, And uh, his endlessly fascinating story is, Told so well, I think, in your new book, again titled Let's Play 2, The Legend of Mr. Cub, The Life of Ernie Banks, published by Hachette, the author, Ron Rappaport. Ron Rappaport, I was deeply honored to speak with you. I loved your book and really enjoyed this opportunity to talk with you about it. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you, Greg. It was a pleasure to be on your show. I really enjoyed it.